Support for Criminal comes from Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who switch to Progressive save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This episode contains descriptions of violence. Please use discretion. I was on a a sleepover at a summer camp, and we're roasting s'mores around a campfire. Author Daniel Stashauer. And the counselor thought it would be a, a terrific idea to tell this group of young kids the story of a horrible series of gruesome crimes where the uh, killer had never been caught, that took place in the woods very close to where we were. (laughs) And I remember, while hearing this story unfold, we had to stop him to get him to explain what the word decapitation meant. And he repeated the phrase many times, and the killer is still out there. We're eight or nine years old. I don't think anybody at all slept at all uh, that night. But that was the first time I'd heard the story of the uh, Kingsbury Run murders. I mean, you know, most kids make up scary stories to, to, to for each other around a campfire. But this one, this is like a this is a real story. This was a real nightmare that happened. It is. It's a true story, uh, and it it played out uh, at the height of the Great Depression in Cleveland in the 1930s. Just before 8 a.m. on September 5th, 1934, a man named Frank Legassi was out collecting driftwood near Cleveland's Euclid Beach Amusement Park. Euclid Beach is on Lake Erie, and its amusement park was modeled on Coney Island. The park's slogan was, Nothing to depress or demoralize. Frank Legassi would apparently go out collecting driftwood most mornings before he went to work, But on this morning, he saw something he didn't understand. He steps a bit closer, and it turns out to be parts of a human torso that are washed up and partially buried on the beach. It was the lower half of a woman's body. The legs had been cut off at the knees. He ran to a nearby house to call the police, And when the body was transported to the county morgue, the coroner thought the woman had died six to eight months earlier, but had only been in the water for a short time. The woman's skin appeared to have been treated with some kind of chemical, 
but the coroner didn't know what the chemical was or why. And determining the woman's identity seemed nearly impossible. What they did notice was that there appeared to be a kind of surgical precision that had been practiced by the killer, presumably by the killer, while dismembering the body. The coroner said that he seemed able to navigate the difficult joints and ligatures as they were approached. And this led investigators to conclude that he must have some kind of experience, perhaps medical training, maybe he was a surgeon of some kind, or a butcher. But it seemed that he knew what he was doing. It touched off a, um, a massive search for, um, for the remaining body parts. They even employed uh, the Boy Scouts, if you can imagine such a thing, to help in the search for body parts. The next morning... A handyman named Joseph Hayduck read about the discovery of the woman's body in the newspaper. He couldn't believe it. Two weeks earlier, he'd found what looked like the upper part of a human torso on a beach outside of the city. There is a dead seagull next to it. Joseph Hayduck had called the sheriff, and the sheriff dismissed it as part of an animal. He told Joseph Hayduck to bury it in the sand. When he saw the newspaper story about the woman, he called the police again and took them to the place where he'd buried the remains. When they were analyzed by the coroner, they were determined to be remains of the same woman. That same week, a teenager was swimming in Lake Erie and reportedly saw a human hand under the water. She told her father it looked like it was waving at her. She wanted him to come and see, and he did, later telling police, quote, I'm sure it was a human hand. But the detectives couldn't find anything. Pieces of body parts were turning up, were being gathered for several days afterwards, which must have been just as horrifying as, as you can imagine. And the police were stymied. They just didn't know how to move forward. A reporter asked a detective if it was a perfect crime. And the police officer said no. But it was, quote, so close to being perfect that we don't know what to do next. I'm Phoebe Judge. This is Criminal. One year later, in September of 1935, two boys, 12 and 16, we're out throwing a ball. The ball sails wide. It rolls down a hill, a very steep incline called Jackass Hill. And they race each other to the bottom. And the older boy gets there first. And when he gets to the bottom, he spies something poking out from, from the brush at the bottom of the hill. And he turns around and he says to his friend, turn around, don't come any closer. There's, there's a man without a head down here. Well, the police got there very quickly, and it turned out there were uh, two bodies, two sets of remains, um, both decapitated. Police were able to identify one of the men. They referred to him as a police character. Meaning he was known to law enforcement. He'd been in trouble with the law. But the police naturally thought, well, we're on our way. 
uh, we've identified this guy. We will be able to uh, work backwards, find out, find out what happened here. And they worked very, very hard, but got nowhere. About four months later, in January 1936, the owner of a meat market walked out of the back of his shop and saw what he said he thought was a wrapped ham in the snow. He unwrapped it to find a human arm wrapped in newspaper. He called the police, who came and unwrapped even more body parts in the snow behind the shop. So, was there a sense that he was trying to make some sort of dramatic... Whoever was doing this, the person that was committing these crimes, was trying to make some sort of dramatic reveal for those that were finding these body parts? I mean, he he wasn't burying these bodies so that they would never be found ever. No, and that was a big part of the frustration of this case. Why was he leaving these parts, it appeared... Uh, deliberately leaving them in places where they were likely to be found. Was he taunting the police? Was that was there some element of gratification in that uh, that that he found uh, he needed people to know what it was he was doing? It was a very very strange uh, series of events. The coroner in Cleveland assembled something he called the torso clinic. It was made up of about 30 people, including anatomy professors, doctors, police, and a psychiatrist. They brought together these experts in the hope that if they got these varied opinions together in one room, they would come up with a way of moving forward. But they they recognized at the time that they had uh, drifted into really uncharted territories and that it would take a, a truly original and heroic effort to get to the bottom of this thing. One of the members of the so-called Torso Clinic was the city's brand-new safety director, a young man named Elliot Ness, who'd moved to Cleveland after living in Chicago, where he'd made a name for himself as the guy who'd brought down Al Capone. We'll be right back. Support for Criminal comes from Astapro, who also provided us with free samples. This is my favorite time of year, even though I've had terrible allergies all my life. My mother says she always knew when I was up in the morning because she'd hear me sneeze and say, Phoebe's up. I think the most I've ever sneezed in a row is 48. It's like my nose is in control and I'm just along for the ride. Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. It starts working in just 30 minutes, so you can get on with your day and be out in the sun comfortably. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount. That's A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Support for Criminal comes from Factor. After a long day at work, sometimes the most convenient dinner option is ordering takeout. But if you make a habit of it, it can get pricey. Factor offers restaurant-quality, ready-to-eat meals delivered right to your doorstep. 
Factor's meals are both nutritious and tasty, and you can choose from more than 35 different options weekly. They have a variety of meal types to fit your needs, too, like keto, calorie-smart, vegan, and veggie, and more, with plenty of delicious add-ons also. I've tried Factor meals myself. Lately, I've enjoyed their shredded chicken taco bowl and Thai-roasted vegetable green curry. You can get as much or as little as you need by choosing 6 to 18 meals per week. You can also pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Head to factormeals.com slash Phoebe50 and use code Phoebe50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code Phoebe50 at factormeals.com slash Phoebe50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Elliot Ness started his career running credit checks and then got a job with the U.S. Treasury Department's Prohibition Bureau. They had a big problem, Al Capone. In June of 1931, the Chicago Tribune reported on the, quote, sensational rise of Al Capone on a tidal wave of beer, ministering to a $20 million a year thirst. He had a, you know, $50,000 pinky ring. He rode around town in an armor-plated Cadillac. He passed out diamond-studded belt buckles to his friends. And supposedly he once said, you can get a lot farther with a smile and a gun than you can with just a smile. And it seemed that nothing could be done about it. By some estimates, the Chicago bootlegging machine at the height of the Prohibition years had set aside $1 million each month. That's each month to grease the palms of crooked officials. In November of 1930, Al Capone rented a storefront and put up a banner that read, Free soup, coffee, and donuts for the unemployed. His soup kitchen became the largest in the city, serving three meals a day. Second helpings were allowed. No questions were ever asked. On Thanksgiving of 1930, his soup kitchen reportedly served dinner to 5,000 people in Chicago. An unnamed source identified as a Capone associate told the Associated Press he couldn't stand it to see those poor devils starving, and nobody else seemed to be doing much, so the big boy decided to do it himself. People called him Good-Hearted Al. Elliot Ness, as a young Prohibition agent, assembled a team and planned raids to uncover Al Capone's hidden breweries around the city, and arrest the men working them, sometimes called alky cookers. How was Al Capone, what did he do to make, to make all this beer, to make this happen? It was very clever. He, uh, and Ness himself admired uh, Capone's business sense, his cleverness in uh, setting up a, this network of, uh, of illicit breweries that pumped out beer. And uh, they, they either paid off officials to look the other way or had a series of moves in place that allowed them to move their operations from place to place, always staying just a step ahead of investigators. So it was a real challenge just to find these breweries, much less uh, to shut them down. Ness, in particular tried to bring diligence and integrity 
to the Prohibition Bureau, which was generally thought to have been incompetent or corrupt. And Ness, for Ness, it was uh, more than just about prohibition. He understood that prohibition had allowed more serious forms of crime to flourish because so many police and politicians were on the take. This was a theme that he returned to again and again throughout his career, that prohibition had put power into the hands of the mob. And a lot has been written about the failures of prohibition. A congressman at the time basically said it was just all a ghastly farce. Uh, One official said that enforcing the law was like trying to dry up the Atlantic Ocean with a blotter. But it was Ness's job, and he was determined to do it. But before he could raid an Al Capone brewery, Elliot Ness and his colleagues had to find one, which they were able to do when they realized that Al Capone was reusing his beer barrels. There'd be a delivery of beer. After the barrels were empty, they were picked up, taken back to one of Capone's plants, washed out, and used again. So Ness and his men began tailing not the beer itself, but the barrels in which it was being delivered. And that was how they worked backwards, kind of paddled upstream, as it were, to the source. In March of 1931, Elliot Ness planned a very big raid. Ness's belief was they had to strike hard and fast so that these guys wouldn't be able to slip away. He said, I had at my disposal this big truck, and they rigged up a sort of snowplow battering ram type of thing on the front so that they could batter their way into the brewery and basically just fall on the guys so quickly they wouldn't have a chance to slip away. There were also guys using special ladders that were padded so that they could quickly climb up to the top of the roof but not make a lot of noise while they were doing it so that they'd be able to come in from the top as well, cover all the exits. On a signal from Ness, the truck went into gear, picked up speed, and at the same time, men are climbing onto the roof and covering the rear exits, and the truck slams through the front doors. Ness jumps out of the truck, and he thinks, oh no, it looks like somehow they got word. They they were staring at a blank wall. Ness took a closer look, realized that the blank wall had actually just been painted to look like an empty room. There was a doorway in it. They popped through that, and managed to scoop up the brewmaster and quite a few of his accomplices. It was the first time, Ness said, that prisoners had been taken in a Capone brewery raid. Did did Capone do anything? Did he try to buy off Elliot Ness? Oh, yeah. I mean, that was... That had been the business model. Capone was great at uh, buying people off. And uh, Ness told this one story about some of Capone's men driving by some of his men, basically throwing a big wad of cash at them. And the men picked it up and threw it back, which uh, made Ness very, very proud indeed. And when they found that they couldn't buy off these men, these supposedly untouchable men, 
Uh, there were threats, but those didn't work either. Untouchable meaning what? Untouchable meaning they couldn't be touched by bribes. They conducted more raids in the first half of 1931, and Elliot Ness said they found and seized 25 breweries. Did Elliot Ness make a dent on Al Capone's business? At one time, newspapers were saying that uh, Ness had so dried up Capone's network uh, that it was costing him millions of dollars. Ness understood his, um, his role as part of a larger effort to bring down Capone. In June of 1931, Al Capone was charged with 23 counts of income tax evasion. A week after that, he was charged with prohibition violations. Elliot Ness describes it as 5,000 violations of the liquor law. He told a reporter, We did our part, but the real work of sending Capone to prison was done by the tax investigators. Our job was more spectacular. That was all. But let's face it, you've got a story here where... Uh, Capone may or may not be sent to prison based on a strict interpretation of tax law on information gathered by a room full of, uh, of accountants. And at the center of it, there's this handsome, young prohibition agent driving a truck through the doors of breweries. That's the story that the reporters latched onto. And let's face it, which movie would you rather see? What happened to Al Capone? Well, it was a long and a spectacular trial, at the end of which Capone was actually convicted of tax evasions and sent to prison. But something that, uh, an aspect of this story that doesn't often get told is even after that conviction, for a while, Ness and the prohibition team kept working on the assumption that Capone would do his time, get out, and as Capone himself said, the organization would kind of hold together while I was away. And there was this thinking that Capone would get out of prison and just sort of pick up where he'd left off. So it was very important to Ness and to others that the conspiracy case be kept current so that additional uh, charges could be brought to bear. That never happened, as it turned out, because very quickly uh, after Capone arrived in um, prison, it was uh, discovered that he was already in the advanced stages of syphilis. And um, although he um, did eventually get out of prison, he was never the same man and never took power again. In June of 1931, the New York Times wrote that the untouchables, quote, impervious to threats of death and bribes, have accomplished their mission. The piece ends, the untouchables are waiting for further orders. I mean, the press about Elliot Ness was really over the top. One paper said, no soldier on the battlefield ever performed more heroic work than has Elliot Ness. Yes. And he's going to have a real struggle to live up to his own reputation to fill his own shoes. By the end of 1933, Prohibition was over. Al Capone was in prison. Elliot Ness reportedly said to a colleague, 
Did you ever think you wanted something more than anything else in the world? And then, after you got it, it wasn't half as good as you expected. Has that ever happened to you? At 31, Elliot Ness moved to Cleveland. He landed a job as the director of public safety. And this is a position that put him in charge of the entire police department and the fire department and a whole lot more. It was a big, big promotion. So big, in fact, that a lot of people assumed he would fall flat on his face. In Chicago, he'd been in charge of a handful of guys. And now he's running a department of thousands of city employees in one of America's biggest cities. And what's more, he's the youngest person ever to hold the position. He moved to Cleveland right around the time people started finding body parts all over the city. We'll be right back. Thanks to Progressive for their support. While you're listening to the show, maybe you're also doing something else. Driving, dishes, folding laundry. I listen when I go on walks. If you're not currently driving a car, you could also be getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. Save money right now from your phone. Drivers who switch to Progressive save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner, and more. Progressive will be with you 24-7, 365 days a year, so you're protected no matter what. You can get a quote for your car insurance at Progressive.com to join over the 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Elliot Ness was sworn in as the safety director in Cleveland in December of 1935, less than three months after the two boys found a body with no head at the bottom of Jackass Hill, and more than a year after the man collecting driftwood had found a woman's torso near Euclid Beach Amusement Park. He was the director of public safety. He was at the top of the pyramid. The police chief reported to him, Nobody expects a director of public safety to solve a murder any more than they expect him to walk a beat or rescue cats stranded in trees, except when it's Elliot Ness. People did expect action from Elliot Ness. They expected heroics. Ness had made a point of saying that he would lead from the front lines. One month into the job, he told a reporter he'd use the same tactics we used against Capone 
he went on to say, quote, all crime is alike. And then more body parts appeared. Two kids found a man's head under a willow tree when they skipped school to go fishing. More than a month later, a teenager was walking on a path through the woods and came across a body without a head. Police later found the head nearby. And then, that September, a man was about to hop onto a moving train when he looked down into a creek and saw a torso. The, the mayor told Elliot Ness to take this whole thing over personally. Yes, the uh, mayor dropped it on his desk. This was at a time when the city of Cleveland was struggling mightily to shake off the lingering effects of the Great Depression. And the mayor, a man named Harold Burton, had put together this series of events to broadcast, to put forward the notion that Cleveland was a place to do business. All roads led to Cleveland. It was a place where there should be business conventions, and all the railroads converged, and they were building a spectacular um, skyscraper to anchor the whole effort. And at the margins of this, there's this uncaught serial killer. It didn't look good for the city's image. Uh, the mayor was concerned, and he put Ness directly on it. So Ness put together a team in the mold of the untouchables, and they worked outside the system and under the radar trying to get information off the criminal grapevine. And he said very little publicly, but there was one notable statement. He said, I'm going to do all I can to aid in the investigation. I want to see this psycho caught. In February of 1937, a man found another torso, almost in the same place where the first had been found in 1934, near Euclid Beach Amusement Park. A head with gold teeth was found that June. In March of 1938, a dog came running out of some woods about 60 miles outside of Cleveland in Sandusky with a human leg in its mouth. The coroner said... From the appearance of the bone, it looks like a professional job, and I'm sure a surgeon's saw was used. It uh, puts the investigators onto a suspect that, uh, that hadn't gotten any serious scrutiny before. Uh, from the beginning, investigators had believed that the killer must have knowledge and training that allowed for the surgical precision of the dismemberments performed on the victims a doctor or a butcher. That was the theory. And this severed limb that was discovered near Sandusky, Ohio, put them on the trail of a particular suspect. They called him Dr. X. His real name was Frank Sweeney. He was a doctor who had fallen on hard times and had a substance abuse problem. He checked a lot of boxes. Ness's team started tailing Dr. X, and apparently the suspect took a perverse pleasure in it, like a form of hide-and-seek. Uh, there are stories that he even called police headquarters to taunt them on the poor quality of the surveillance effort. He'd say something to the effect of, wow, that guy you had tailing me wasn't very good. If he wants to try again, I'll be at such-and-such such a department store tomorrow afternoon. Well... At one stage, Ness and his men scooped this guy up 
and grilled him for a very long time in a hotel suite. The details are sketchy and contradictory, but one of Ness's colleagues said that the interrogation went on for a week or possibly two in eight-hour stretches. But the suspect never cracked, and Ness finally had to let him go. Three months later, a woman's torso was found at the dump. As police searched the area, people came to watch. One man saw the investigation on his way home from work and decided to go back to the dump later that evening and bring his wife and a friend. And when he did, he stumbled onto the remains of a man. Civilians offered to try to help police officers make sure there weren't more bodies in the dump, and the police accepted help from about 100 volunteers. Daniel Stashauer says they were called torso detectives. One newspaper characterized the uncaught serial killer as, uh, as Cleveland's shame. For a time, Ness was seen to be doing all he could uh, to run the killer to ground. But it was natural that over time, no matter what he was doing behind the scenes, and he wasn't talking about it very much, about what he was doing behind the scenes, the, the press began to turn. They began to wonder, uh, why is this killer still out there? Two days after the search, Elliot Ness organized a raid on a part of town where a lot of people had built shelters, by some accounts, because he believed that the murderer was targeting the city's poorest men and women, and by some accounts, so he could search the shelters for knives or other evidence. At least 60 men were arrested, and then Elliot Ness ordered the fire chief to soak the entire area in coal oil and light it on fire. An editorial in the Cleveland Press on August 19, 1938, read, Safety Director Elliot Ness's raid upon the packing box homes may contribute something to the capture of the torso killer. We doubt it. Many of the men arrested were charged with vagrancy and sentenced to workhouses. One week later, Frank Sweeney, Dr. X, had himself admitted to a veteran's facility called the Soldiers and Sailors Home. And it's often reported that when Sweeney checked himself into this veteran's home, he had placed himself beyond the reach of law, that it was the equivalent of getting himself locked up in, in an asylum where the law couldn't touch him. That wasn't strictly the case. He could uh, come and go almost at will, and Ness arranged to have him followed when he did. But the killings appeared to have stopped at that point. And although... The investigation continued, and Sweeney remained under surveillance. By 1938, the killings appeared to have come to an end. By this point, Elliot Ness's wife had left him. He also seemed to be blowing off steam in a way that began to draw attention. And it's an unhappy irony that the most famous prohibition agent of all time had some real momentum with alcohol. And this problem began to get worse over time. There were nightclubs and 
hotels that reserved tables for his exclusive use. And at least one friend insisted that, uh, you know, he wasn't a heavy drinker, but that he could keep at it for long periods without giving any appearance of being swacked. Well, I don't know if that was true or not, but he appeared to be swacked much of the time, and people were beginning to notice. Around 5 a.m. one morning in 1942, when he was 38, he was driving home from a bar called the Vogue Room and got into an accident. His car uh, slips on an icy patch, slams into another one, and uh, a gentleman is, uh, is hurt and has to be taken to the hospital. And the details are a little sketchy and a little confused, but there was some criticism that Ness did not identify himself and left the scene before police arrived. And it seemed that the time had come to step down from the post of safety director. He tried to make something work for himself in the private sector. But it turned out Ness didn't have much of a head for business. Uh, Still, he worked very hard at it, um, but without a great deal of success. An editor at Cleveland's Plain Dealer said that Elliot Ness had peaked too young. A friend said, quote, he simply ran out of gas. At one point, he got a job at a bookstore. And then one day, he was at a bar with a friend in New York. His friend had invited a writer named Oscar Fraley to join them. So the two friends are just catching up while Ness sits at the bar drinking. And after a while, when uh, Ness's friend is kind of talked out, he turns to Fraley and he says, you know, you ought to talk to this guy. This is the guy who took down Al Capone, he says. It it was very dangerous. He's got stories to tell. Fraley sort of looks at Ness, and in Fraley's words, he says, he couldn't believe this mild-mannered guy had anything to do with it. Ness looks back at him and says, it was dangerous. And for whatever reason, Ness just starts talking, and they talk through the night, And Ness is telling stories of Chicago and the Untouchables and Capone, and Fraley is mesmerized. And when it's all over, Fraley says, you know, you should write a book. And one thing leads to another, and they collaborate on the book that became The Untouchables. Ness did not live to see The Untouchables published. He died in 1957 of a heart attack at the age of 55, and the book appeared a few months later. The book was adapted into a TV show in 1959. It ran for four seasons. And then it was made into a movie, with Kevin Costner playing Elliot Ness and Robert De Niro playing Al Capone. He died hoping that the book would be a success, but believing himself to be a forgotten figure. Do you think Frank Sweeney was the torso murderer? For my purposes, it's enough that Elliot Ness believed it. I could argue this case up or down. Frank Sweeney was definitely not a good guy. And in Ness's papers in Cleveland, there are taunting postcards that Sweeney sent to Ness 
over the course of years. Ness had clearly gotten under Sweeney's skin in a big way, and he wrote him these these postcards uh, that are very hard to understand. They're full of bizarre references, and they're strange underlinings and attempts at humor. And Sweeney walks right up to the edge of saying something that appears to implicate himself, but he never crosses over. There was nothing there that rises to the level of a confession. It's possible that Sweeney just bitterly resented what, it, what Ness had put him through. But do I think he did it? Yeah, I do. Learn more about Elliot Ness in Daniel Stashauer's book, American Demon, Elliot Ness and the Hunt for America's Jack the Ripper. We'll have a link in the show notes. Criminal is created by Lauren Spohr and me. Nadia Wilson is our senior producer. Katie Bishop is our supervising producer. Our producers are Susanna Robertson, Jackie Sajiko, Lily Clark, Lena Sillison, and Megan Kinane. Our technical director is Rob Byers. Veronica Simonetti mixed this episode. Engineering by Russ Henry. Julian Alexander makes original illustrations for each episode of Criminal. You can see them at thisiscriminal.com. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Criminal Show and Instagram at criminal underscore podcast. We're also on YouTube at youtube.com slash criminal podcast. Criminal is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Discover more great shows at podcast.voxmedia.com. I'm Phoebe Judge. This is Criminal. Thanks to Progressive for their support. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who switch to Progressive save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin-A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna.